Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. For today's What Fuels You podcast, I am thrilled to welcome my friend, Terry Sitterman. Terry's an executive coach and author of the book, From the CEO's Perspective. She has spent the last several years asking hard questions and challenging the thinking of most of the CEOs in the Seattle region. And for that reason, I have asked her to do the inaugural interview for What Fuels You podcast. She's going to interview me. Terry, thanks so much for being here. I don't know what I was thinking, putting myself in the hot seat with you since you are uh, one of the best interviewers I've ever heard. I love watching you on stage. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me here. I'm super excited. And um, if you're cool with it, let's just dig in. Ready? Okay, I'm so, ready. So we're going to do something I call rapid fire. Oh, gosh. So okay. it's super fast. Ready? I didn't even, you didn't even send them to me. Nope, not cool. I would never send them to you. They're okay. called rapid fire. Okay. Okay, ready? Yes. If you didn't live in Seattle, where would you live? New York. Name one book you think everyone should read. To Kill a Mockingbird. What's one pet peeve? Passive aggressive people. If you were in a band, what would it be called? Solid gold dancing. What's, who's your role model? Uh, Terry Castle. She's a friend of mine who lives in New York. And we'll talk more about Terry. What's your theme song? The Eye of the Tiger. Describe yourself as a leader in three words. Passionate, empathetic, and... Uh, passionate, empathetic, and servant-oriented. If you could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? My grandmother on my mom's side. And what would be your first question? What was my mom like as a little girl? Awesome. All right. What would your band be called? Um, something mean, probably. <laughs> mean know. girls gone wild. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. All right. So speaking of questions, I have a few questions for you today. So okay. we're going to we're gonna kind of just take this in a, a little bit of a chronological order, but, you know, I always like to throw things in when I can. So tell me, and remember that my perspective is always about leadership, so, um, so we'll get to a lot of things today. What's the earliest memory you have of being a leader? I think, I mean, I joke about this, but I feel like I was born a leader. I've been like a leader type my whole life. I remember running for student council in second grade. Um, I lost. But I, one of my best friends actually reminds me that I got the school to allow um, auditions on the playground in third grade because I wanted to cast Annie. And so I was the... <laughs> I was the casting agent, and that was what we did at the recess. And the producer yeah. and the lead. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. It was super fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Who had the biggest influence in your life at that time? At that stage, I mean, growing up, I think uh, my family was in a family business, and my grandfather was kind of the grand poobah. So I was raised to really look up to him and admire many of his qualities. Um, my parents, my mom and dad, my brother, who's 15 months older than me. So if you think about your grandfather, because you kind of focused on him, what's the biggest lesson you learned from him? He was incredibly tenacious and fearless. 
and he was the type of person who um, took very good care of himself. He died at 101 and a half, and he had, was only taking an aspirin a day. Wow. Um, so I learned about self-care. I learned about hard work. Um, he came from nothing and built himself to, you know, a very successful businessman. Wow. And so what was your first job? Did you work for him or did you did you have a different job? My very first job, yeah, I worked for the family business selling clothes for many years. I was also a um, tennis instructor um, every summer. And uh, my first job job was a full-blown cold caller, um, just like dialing for dollars job. I I honestly, I can't even remember what I was selling. (laughs) It's so sad, but it was like, it was not for me. So you mentioned tennis. You were a competitive tennis player, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what was the biggest lesson you learned from the time that you started playing? How old were you when you started playing? Well, my mom taught herself how to play when she was pregnant with my brother, and she ended up being a nationally ranked tennis player. Um, And I just grew up on the tennis court because she was a stay-at-home mom, and she'd take me to the tennis court when she had a match. And so I started playing myself when I was probably six or seven, but I started competing at age eight, and I really peaked early. I was, like, top of my game at, like, 12. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So what – I mean, if you think about that journey, it's pretty unique. For a lot of reasons, it's unique. So what do you think you really took away that helped shape you today? Well, I think that – I I love tennis, but I think that I probably would have thrived even more in a team sport. I'm really a team person. I might have been the captain of the team, but I really like a team sport. I don't hate to lose as much as other people do. I love to win, but I don't hate to lose like you really need to to play at that level. Um, I ended up playing in college and, you know, played a lot. Yeah. It's funny. Love to win, hate to lose. I ask that question of CEOs all the time. Mm -hmm. It's I think it tells a lot about people. I hate to lose. You, well, I know that about you. But I don't love to win. But you're also, oh, you don't? <laughs> I don't care about winning. I just hate to lose. Oh, mine's loving to win. For sure. I love to win. I think that's probably because you're more optimistic than I am. Well, yes. <laughs> we discovered that early on. I'm the, introver- I'm the extrovert. You're the introvert. I'm the lover. That's you're not right. the hater. But, kind of yeah. sometimes. Um, so give me a snapshot. After, co- after school, you went to high school, then college. So what happened after that? Where, where did you land? I moved to San Francisco right out of college and uh, met a recruiter and got a job right out of school as a recruiter. 100% so that was your commission. first job? My first job, 22. Um, yeah. And I, I worked at night and on the weekends at Banana Republic so that I could afford to do it. And um, But I loved it from day one. So what did you love about it? What made you good at well, it? Well, back in the day, it was like there was no LinkedIn. There was no, there was no internet. <laughs> so... People hired me for my network, mm-hmm. and I would uh, go out at night, and I was involved with different sporting activities in San Francisco, and I built a really big network, and I could kind of parlay my personal and professional life really naturally, and I loved that it was just an ability to kind of read people really well, and I felt like I was getting paid for what I do anyway. I just am a connector type who loves to introduce people to other people. And so it's never really felt like work for me. So what happened after San Francisco? Um, About a year into my career, uh, a company that was based out of Los Angeles uh, got in touch with one of my colleagues. She said, well, I'll open up your San Francisco office. If I can kind of bring this gal with me, I'd like to introduce you to her. Uh, She and I flew down to Los Angeles to meet this uh, 
couple that ran this business, and they hired us to open up their San Francisco office. They had never opened up another office, but very quickly we became the top agency in San Francisco. Then we opened up um, Silicon Valley, and then I moved to New York to open up New York and Boston. Um, so it was it worked out really nicely. And I think from being raised in an entrepreneurial family, I, I realized I was not the individual contributor that my colleague was who brought me over. I was really thought like an owner, and I didn't realize that that was kind of my DNA. And I was um, 26 when they moved me to New York, and they signed a 10-year lease with, wow. like, my name on it, my name on the bank account. I mean, the whole thing was crazy because we didn't even know if I was going to like New York. Right. Um, but they really, I mean, they took a big risk. They put they a did. lot of weight into it. I know. It. I need to in. find myself a mini-me. Yeah. <laughs> I need to find me back in the day to open up other offices for me. Yeah. It was, it was a great relationship, and I learned a lot from them. So if you think about New York, what do you regret doing or not doing when you live there? Well, the whole time I lived there, I kept thinking, you know, I didn't realize I was going to meet my husband there. I didn't realize I was going to get pregnant with my first two children there. I didn't realize I was going to kind of live, live there versus be someone in my 20s that kind of does the New York thing. I actually lived there. I had kids in private school. Um, and the whole time I kept thinking, I think I should start my own company, but I was intimidated by the idea that I didn't know how long I was going to be in New York. And I also felt like it was a, a huge expense to do business in New York. Um, but I think now and looking back, I should have just done it because I'm having the time of my life. Yeah. And I was doing everything but having it be my own capital, which is scary. But um, I know how to do this. And I knew how 10 years ago. I just started Fuel five years ago. So I don't know. I had a whole team that was very loyal to me. I think I could have easily started a company there. And so eventually you did. Yeah. But tell us how you got back to Seattle. Well, so 2009 hit. I lived in New York through 9-11. So that was obviously shaped me how, in many tell ways. Us more, tell us more about. Well, I was running that office that I had opened up for the LA-based company. Yeah. And I um, had a team of about 20 people. And, uh, you know, I walked in that day and my receptionist said a, a plane had hit. She was on the phone with her brother who worked at Solomon Smith Barney in... Um, one of the towers. And I kind of was like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Let me know what happens. I'm like starting the meeting. It was Tuesday morning, um, our weekly meeting. And then she came in and said, oh, I think it's like really bad. And so my whole Where was team, your office? my office was on 53rd and Lex. Okay. So my team went up to the roof and saw the second plane hit, all of them. And I um, stayed in my office and called the CEO in Los Angeles and then called my parents and called my brother to just tell everyone that I was okay. And after 9-11 happened, uh, I ended up meeting the CEO of a company called Glowcap. And I met him through a mutual friend who had gone over to work for him and said, this guy's great and he has incredible technology. And we've been working kind of with one arm behind our back with the technology we've been using. And he had developed an incredible technology that at the time, you know, it was before LinkedIn did not exist. It was really a an ATS applicant tracking system mixed in with a CRM, client relationship management system. And they talked to one another and it sent emails out to pr prospective candidates. And at the time, no one was doing that. So I realized that if I could match kind of my skill set, my years of experience, my ability to build teams with that technology, that I could kind of blow it up. So he and I met. We decided that I was going to move to Seattle and open up a Seattle office for him. And we were going to kind of do a joint venture, see how it worked. 
And pretty soon after I joined him, this was in 2003, um, I got pregnant with my first child. And I was like, I guess I'm not moving to Seattle now. And then our business really took off, like huge. Um, And then I realized I don't even want to leave New York. I'm making money. I'm having fun. I'm building this company. Um, For him, I ended up opening San Francisco, Los Angeles, Greenwich, Connecticut, Um, So I kind of just did the reverse and Seattle. And uh, we had a great run. I had an awesome team. I had about 50 people reporting into me um, across the country. And we built it to a multi, multi multi-million dollar business. And when 2009 hit, um, all of my clients kind of imploded. I mean, there was Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. And uh, we worked a lot in the alternative asset world. So private equity, hedge funds, venture capital, and... um, we got nailed. And so David and I looked at each other and said, okay, now at this point, we've got two kids. We're about to have our first child enter kindergarten. And what are we doing? So we decided to rent out our apartment in New York and rent a house in Seattle. I'm meant to be in front of clients, in front of candidates, motivating a team. I'm not meant to be kind of a long distance uh, remote manager that kind of puts out fires. And so... um, In 2013, after he had offered me to move back and be the CEO of the company, uh, I turned it down. Moved back to New York. He wanted me to move back to New York and be the CEO. He realized that um, he probably shouldn't have let me move. Um, And he realized that he didn't love that job anymore. He had all sorts of things he wanted to do, and he's done since. Um, And I moved. uh, I decided not to move back to New York. And at that point, I said, well, if I'm going to do a build, which Seattle really was a build, I was like, why not now? You know, I realized that um, you'll probably ask me about fear, but I had a lot of fear around it, you know? What part? I had innate business sense from my family and just kind of, um, I think I really have a marketing mind, Mm -hmm. but I did not understand how to read a P&L. I did not have confidence around understanding legal documents. Now, all I care about all day long is our reputation. And I'm in the lane I'm supposed to be in. But and, so before you go into the yeah. lane, so how did you overcome the fear? Well, for 10 years, my dad and my brother and David and people that know me well were like, you can do this. You do realize you can hire those people, right? And I just felt like I wouldn't even know what I didn't know. And um, being on the executive team of my last firm and the firm before, I really had a lot of exposure to all sorts of parts of the business. I just didn't have my own capital on the line. Mm-hmm. And it just felt scary. Um, you know, my husband's also an entrepreneur and it just felt scary and I had great income. Um, I had always done really well. And so I think that I felt like that could be possibly enough, but the best part for me of owning my own company, the income is like completely secondary. It's like, it's my, um, vision and ideas, the brand, it, it, it reflects me. And it reflects my values. And it's really been incredibly satisfying to have that part, like that I can take care of people the way I want to take care of them. Because we had very different views on that. My last two CEOs and I had very different views on people versus money. So what advice do you have for people who are thinking about making that jump, becoming the CEO, starting their own business? Well, I think, you know, some of the decision or lack of decision on my part was also based on the geography. I was in New York. I didn't know where I was going to be living. I was also having babies. Now I have three. And so some of it was just timing. And um, I would say for people to obviously 
make sure that they have a viable idea or business. Mm -hmm. Um, But once you do, not to really overthink it. And you could maybe figure out a way to somehow keep some sort of passive income. Depends on what your drivers are. If it's like I'm fearful because I need the money and I don't know how to take this kind of step back while I have to build, that's one part that kind of drives people and keeps them from taking the plunge. And sometimes I think people just need to be around other strong people who believe in that them. believe in them yeah. and that just say, you can do this. If not you, then who? And why not you? Right. There's no reason why you shouldn't have a seat at the table. Yeah. I think the why not you is a really important question yeah, that I more think people need to ask. For sure. It's incredibly rewarding to be a recruiter and not just, it's not just transactional. It's like you're really actually shaping people's trajectory of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, you know, I keep thinking I'll have a 2.0 or a 3.0 version. Having done this for 25 years, I'm like, it can't just be recruiting. But it really satisfies me. And that fills my bucket, um, kind of helping people and um, understanding people. And I also love the business side of me, loves all the different companies I get to meet with. Yeah. What was the inspiration behind naming Fuel? Fuel. Oh, geez. Well, so Mindy Blakesley and Shauna Conlin worked with me at my last company. We just sat with a whiteboard and a computer, and every name was taken. But I love the name, and then our tagline of What Fuels You came really organically, and it's on everything, um, hashtag What Fuels You. And I love learning from people what fuels them. Uh, it's different for everyone, and it's different depending on where people are in their life, and it's it's totally came together, the brand. We That's love it. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. It looks beautiful. Thanks. So what? give us kind of the snapshot of what do you guys really specialize in? So we kind of have it like Fuel Talent is almost like a holding company of lots of little recruiting firms within Fuel Talent. So there's practice heads who run different practices, and the different practices include um, software development engineers, so all levels up to CTO, everything in between. Um, and marketing, product, accounting, finance, HR, and admin. Um, And then we also place personal assistants and household managers, which just kind of organically came from our admin practice. So what, what is the one or two things that you think CEOs really need to keep in mind when they're hiring for an executive assistant? I think that um, I've been trying to crack this code for a very long time, and Shauna Conlon and I have talked about trying to come up with some sort of product I think that a lot of times I realize that the CEO doesn't know themselves well enough. And if an assistant's not strong enough to ask the right questions, they're not necessarily. They need a coach. <laughs> they're not necessarily. The assistants are oftentimes, they love um, nurturing and they love anticipating needs and they love being organized and follow through and all those skills. But I think that the biggest thing is fit and chemistry and realizing we're going to spend eight hours a day and I'm going to have to get to know you really well. But in order for me to fast forward that, because the problem is that they're they're going to lose trust pretty quickly mm-hmm. if that assistant doesn't nail it. But the assistant may have done something completely differently for their old, their old exec because that exec may have wanted things done differently. And so I think that the onboarding of the assistant and exec has to be taken very, very seriously. And we've talked about putting together a checklist. Yeah, that is probably, I'd say that's almost one of the, I think it's the one of the hardest hires yes, for a CEO to make. it is. But Shauna Conlon, who runs that practice, is incredible. I mean, she's placed for, you name it, in Seattle. She's really good. So what's your secret sauce when it comes to the success that you've had in in the recruiting world? 
the success that the company's had in the recruiting world? I, I honestly, I believe a lot of it is, um, I mean, a little bit of that, like 80% of life is showing up. Like I just kind of show up and follow through and execute on things. Um, I'm not a person who's like has meetings about meetings or lists about lists. It's a lot of just kind of doing. And I also love to um, kind of take care of others. And so there's been a lot of doing good type of behavior that doesn't link at all to my business Mm -hmm. that I think people remember. But I'm pretty good at picking up on both the environment and also the people and the kind of the nuanced part of it. And there's plenty of recruiters that are really good who are literally prescriptive. Mm -hmm. And it's just a numbers game. Right. You know, but that's not really my approach as much. Um, I'm much more like, hey, I don't know if this person's right, but can you do me a favor and just spend like 20 minutes with them? Um, And I have total satisfaction when that actually hits because it's like, I knew it. It's a match. It's a match. Yeah. So what kind of clients are the best ones for you to work with? Who are the ideal clients? We like to line up with companies who are, you know, engaged and see us as partners and not as a vendor mm-hmm. who's just, they're not expecting, they're not measuring us by volume because they've got to hit some metrics of a certain amount of resumes that they've screened because hopefully we're doing that. Um, hopefully they're in line with comp mm-hmm. um, and have a compelling story that's easy for us to sell and close. Um, if they don't, then hopefully they've got something else. Um, that they can offer to our candidates. Um, We like to really have access to the hiring managers as much as possible, and that takes time to build a relationship so that it's um, there's a trust there and we can really read and anticipate what they're going to need. Those are the best clients. I mean, most of our clients are kind of Series B-funded startups, Series A, Series B-started startups, and they may have an internal recruiter. They may not have an internal recruiter. Um, but they allow us to do what we do best, which is to really spend a lot of time on the front end getting to know them so that we can headhunt for them versus post jobs and hope that, like, we don't do the, like, post and pray approach. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds um, like your approach is different from transactional. What, how do you yes. describe the approach that you guys take? Well, I think that um, – you know, at the end of the day, there's been a lot of automation that's happened, and it's afforded us a lot of efficiencies. But I don't think that when you are in the kind of services business and in the specifically people side of the services business that anything can uh, replace relationships. Yeah. And so our special sauce, you know, and I've had to really work hard with the team to teach them this, is just – to build relationships, that it might not be a today person that you're going to place or a today company that you're going to work with, but a down-the-road company. Um, and so we've liked to get involved with companies that might be in, um, you know, literally like seed round, and we get to know them at that point. It's really early. Yeah. I mean, I like to know who's doing what and get to know them, and I'm happy to offer any sort of consultation Um We've also just partnered with a friend of mine who I also would like to have on the podcast who's built internal recruiting teams. And um, I think a huge thing that we can give back to them is having them meet with us, meet with her to really understand what they need to put in to build a robust recruiting arm. Because I think oftentimes startups, big mistake I see is they're just hiring somebody who maybe was a recruiting coordinator or they may have been a sourcer at like an Amazon mm-hmm. and um, they want them to kind of run talent acquisition. And there's so many arms to 
that. I mean, there's the recruiting branding, there's the process, there's the comp, there's the metrics that you need to be looking at, there's all the systems. And um, a lot of companies just don't get that right. And kind of the saying is like, time kills all deals. And it's really tough to partner with those companies that have not figured out the cadence and the pace of this market. So that's a great. So that's one of the mistakes you see them make. Do you see what other mistakes do you see startups make when it comes to recruiting or talent acquisition? Um, I think that, you know, oftentimes I'm meeting with the CEO at the onset and they say that their highest and best use of their time is to focus kind of maniacally on talent and that that's the thing that they lose the most sleep over is how am I going to get the best team? And then they kind of go dark because they have another job to do. And so they haven't slowed down enough to say, um, I mean, everything from why do we need this job description? Who is it reporting into? Who's in the interview loop? What's the feedback loop going to look like? What is our expectation of our team as far as, um, you know, feedback timeline? And so if it's like, hey, I'm going to submit a resume and then you're going to look at it two weeks later and then you're going to interview the person a week later and then we're going to get feedback a week later, that person's already got four offers. Right. And so we coach on that, but there's only so much that we can do. And so one of the things I think that they don't do is dedicate someone to just funneling the resumes or to at least starting with an, an applicant tracking system or, or um, a lot of our clients love Lever. It's a, um, a tracking tool. Mm-hmm. And so it's it can just be kind of a free-for-all if you don't get a game plan. Yeah. Well, and that's um, one of the biggest challenges is CEOs doing only what the CEO can do and hiring for the rest. Yes. I mean, that's something that we I spent so much time coaching on. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. And I think that they have all At every great, level. They have great intentions. Um, but they either are too involved in it, and then they're they're a bottleneck, um, and then the time kills the deal, mm-hmm. or they are um, thinking that they're involved, but they're not. They just kind of throw people into the mix, and they don't prep them. Look at the resume first. Figure out what are you exactly pressing on versus what I'm pressing on. We're repeating, and they, by the way, sometimes put someone in who's not even happy at the company. And then it goes, Big mistake. It Big goes sour. <laughs> but they're, they're just kind of in like execution of recruiting yeah. mode versus strategy of recruiting mode. Yeah. If that makes sense. It makes sense because it happens not just in recruiting, but in all aspects. Because, yes. you know, CEO, oftentimes CEOs, they're really good at a lot of things, but they yes. are the CEO. Yes. And that's what they have to be the best at. It's great when we can partner. And we don't, we also don't love to partner with companies who, um, this is actually a nugget that I think is important that I tell a lot of my CEO friends and clients that if they put somebody into a talent acquisition position and then they internally at their company and then they say, hey, hey, you know, partner also with Fuel Talent or another agency, and then they measure the internal recruiter by um, metrics that put us in competition. So not just how did not just did you fill the role, but how did you fill the role? Mm-hmm. It shouldn't matter how they filled the role if there's a budget for it. It should matter that they get people hired that are right for the role and that they're not um, wasting time of, you know, getting interview loops for three hours with their engineering team that takes away from them producing a product. Getting the, Yeah. So that's, that's I think that's really good advice. I yeah, that's great. So um, who's the next client that doesn't know that they need you? <laughs> Well, we've um, we've shifted a little bit, not away from startups, but we've added to our business, and we're now starting to partner with larger enterprise clients. Um, they use us for long-term contract roles, 
And um, so we're doing a big push on that. So I would say that the people who don't know that they need us would be the hiring managers within the larger enterprise clients because those are harder to get to. Usually the cream rises to the top in any services industry by seeing that we are thorough, we have great candidate control, um, we've got great write-ups on our candidates, we don't lose deals at the 11th hour, hopefully. Um, And so it's really the hiring managers. The companies themselves, I think that we're doing a pretty good job of getting our name out there and getting a a great um, source from our referrals. A lot of companies are referred to us. Awesome. Well, and this is going to help, too. So tell, tell us more about the inspiration for this podcast. I started listening to podcasts in the last, I would say, maybe a year, year and a half, and I'm become kind of obsessed. I feel like I just want to not do anything but listen to podcasts. Yeah. It's actually making they me work. Addictive. It's actually making me like when you're driving, you kind of don't want to get to your garage or when you're working out, you're like, oh, I think I could go another 20 minutes. It's, it's been great. Um, and it's endless because I have a huge um, interest uh, in many different categories. What are your favorites? Some of your favorites. Um, how I built this. Oh yeah, I cannot That's stop listening to that one. All right, so my favorite. I have to plug my favorite, which is. Yeah, what are yours? Well, it's the Alec Baldwin. Um, oh, you told me about that one. Here's the thing. I love that. What I like about that is his speed. He's, He's so like, fast, blah, 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 blah. and he asks hard yes. questions. I yes. love it, That's... and our personalities need that. So, yeah. Yes. That's my very favorite yes. one. Hopefully, but I we're talking fast enough. So, what can listeners expect to hear on this podcast going forward? Well, I definitely want people to email in to say what they want to hear about, but I feel like I just get asked every question under the sun as a recruiter, whether it's companies asking, how do I compete? It is a little mysterious. Well, they just kind of want to know that there's some sort of magic formula, which there isn't. Um, It's a very competitive market right now. And so um, I've spoken on different panels about things like, how do I, we called it uh, David versus Goliath last year at Startup Week. And it was like, how do I compete against the Facebooks and Twitters and Amazons, the big money. And um, lots of startup clients of mine have different philosophies on it. It's like, do we make the offer and then let them kind of go to Amazon with an offer in hand? Do we wait if we hear they're talking to Amazon and just say, hey, take that process through. And if you don't get the job, come back to us. Like, Mm. what's the strategy on that? Um, My attitude is that if somebody wants Amazon, they probably don't want to start up. And it's really hard to vet for kind of startup stomach or startup mentality. I think that it's um, crucial to be thinking about things like, I mean, people want to know about how to network, um, how to uh, interview. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to have how to assess equity um, offerings. Um, When do I know that I'm... Um, able to walk away and what do I need to be pushing for and negotiating on? And so I've had, um, for our team, we've brought in venture capitalists, we've brought in attorneys, I've brought in, you know, Carnegie Mellon uh, engineers who train us to think about what an engineer might be thinking about. That's awesome. So I'm trying to make our team smarter and better. And I'm Mm -hmm. hoping through this podcast that I can share stuff that I'm sharing with our team. And then also, I personally am a person who just gets really curious about humans and I like to go deep. And so I'm going to try to make people talk about stuff that might make them uncomfortable. That's the only way to do it. Yeah. Being out of your comfort zone Just is a the little only bit. way to be in yeah, the world. Yeah, because I love learning about that kind of stuff about people. That's awesome. So what's one piece of advice? I'm switching gears here. Oh, what's yeah. one piece of advice you received early in your career that you didn't believe until now? Uh, I think that 
convincing myself that in order to be a CEO or a founder that you needed to understand every aspect of the business inside and out. And I have since learned doing a lot of women things. It's very female of you. I've heard that women have a very hard time delegating. Um, I am not as good as uh, I could be at negotiating. You know, I'm not. We can a, all be better at negotiating. But I think a lot of women, they're you know, clients will be like, "How about?" And I'm like, oh, "Okay," <laughs> you know, because it's that like desire to please and make everybody happy. Um, you know, I'm 46, almost 47. If I'm 50 and still being such a pleaser, like that will be a problem. Honey, you come to me. I'll well, take, I know, I'll, but I'm kick the ter- pleaser right out of I you. I am terrible at that. I'm literally terrible at that. I make. I want to make sure everybody's happy all the time. No yeah. time for that. Um, okay. <laughs> so you talked about Terry as one of your mentors. Yeah. Tell me She's more amazing. about Terry. Terry is amazing. Terry was the global head of HR at Merrill Lynch and through, I mean, through the 90s. And she came to the firm I was at before this um, after Merrill Lynch. And, I mean, she was on the executive team and she was looking for her kind of fun, like, later in life job. She was... Um, at the time, well into her 50s, and was just looking for kind of a fun job. She's she's really good about not apologizing for who you are. And she's very much like, but you're you're kind of a great conductor. You're really good at getting the band kind of all, the, the orchestra all going together. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the analogy I use now for like even parenting or, or, you know, leading the team at work. And this is mine. I'm happy because I came up with this. But I'm like, you know, if you're bowling, I'm happy to be the kind of guardrails, but I don't need to throw the ball, throw the ball. I don't need to, like, make sure I hit every pin. I just need to be the person that can kind of say, like, let's circle back and stay in the lane. And then I need to be in my own lane where I thrive. Yeah. Um, and she's, she was really good because she believed in me. Um, she told me early on that she thought I should start my own company and, um, she actually wrote me a check. Um, and she said, I know you don't need funding, but I think that maybe if I just put this in your bank, you'll have more confidence to just go do this because enough's enough. Um, so I didn't touch it. I just like kept it in the bank, but technically she invested in me. Yeah. Um, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, you know, I think that's a great message for what we, what can we do as women to support other women? Totally. That. Totally. I mean, it doesn't take much. Terry's incredible. So what's most surprised you about having kids? Well, for me, you know, I think that it's common um, to be asked, like, how do you do it all? Because the three kids and they're running a business and then we're also really social and I'm on a couple boards. Like, there's different things that I like to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that it um, takes a village. You know, we have an au pair who lives with us. Um, My husband's really helpful, and we've been lucky. Um, But the biggest thing that surprised me about having kids is that, obviously, you cannot shape them. We have three, and they're all three extremely different. But I do think that um, I didn't realize how satisfied I would feel by seeing them be self-reliant. And I think that that's a gift that I've given them um, I'm going to take credit for it. And I joke that it's because I'm lazy. It's not the laziness. It's just like out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Like they have to kind of figure it out because I'm not going to spoon feed them. I'm not going to be the mom that's coddling them um, every step of the way. And so I encourage them and I love them, but they're very capable for their age. And um, I think that I've learned that that's possible. And I think that it's something I get kind of 
excited to talk to other moms about. God, there's a lot of moms that need to be need yes, to hear what you just said. It's very challenging to not just see moms, dads them. too. Well, it's just challenging when I see people um, kind of smothering their kids, and um, you know. But I also think that the biggest lesson has definitely been that you cannot shape them. Um, two are kind of more similar to me, and one is more similar to my husband. So speaking of your husband, he yes. is also a successful entrepreneur, yes. data genius. Um, <laughs> so what do you most admire about him? About David? Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's just kind of like joie de vivre. Like he's, um, he kind of sees the world. He's got kind of a kid-like way of seeing the world. He's very much like alive and awake. And um, he's the type of person who does do a deep dive on things. So he's becomes kind of a knowledge expert on things that he gets into. Um, but he also knows everything about everything. He's incredibly smart. My family calls him Babar. Um, <laughs> Elephant? Yes. Just like he does not forget a thing. He's like, he's sharp. And so definitely his mind, but also his... Um, his attitude. I mean, I tend to be kind of more type A and intense, and he's very much literally like stop and smell the roses. And um, it's a good way to live. It is a good way. Yeah. This is the hardest question I'm going to ask you. Uh-oh. If you weren't the CEO of Fuel Talent, what would you be doing? Oh, I'm like a solid gold dancer. It's back to solid gold. Oh, my God. It wasn't hard at all. Are you kidding? I <laughs> is love it, to is dance. That, is that why you're wearing so much fringe today? Am I wearing fringe? I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. You're wearing the fringe. Yeah, I guess, I mean, something with, um, it depends. I mean, I'm not talented enough to do something for real that is in that space, but I'm, I'm like, so happy when I'm dancing. Um, I would probably maybe be doing something in sports or entertainment or something. Definitely huh. something front of the house, not back of the house. Yeah, you're no back of the I'm house. I'm an extrovert. Yeah. I'll take the back of the house. Yeah. Back of the house for a A talk show. A talk show. You know, you. I was thinking you'd be really good on a game show. A podcast. A game show? No, David would. David can <laughs> Well, he'd be answer. good on Jeopardy. He'd be good at But you'd be he'd good literally. on Family Feud. <laughs> <laughs> In future episodes, I'll be doing the interviewing and featuring CEOs, heads of talent acquisition, executive coaches, and other experts in Seattle. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.